Someday, I will get to preach, and it won't be in my living room to my phone camera. One day, I will get to preach, and it won't be to a camera in our church building with no one else around. One day, we will get to be together again at all of our campuses, and that will be an amazing day. But how do we get from where we are now, with all that's going on in the world, everything that's happening with this pandemic and how uh, governments are trying to uh, keep us safe. How do we get from where we are now to meeting again like we used to? Um, in the coming days, we're going to share with you through uh, our email newsletter, through social media, through our blog, uh, through a video, through our weekly update podcast. Uh, we're going to share with you the phases that it'll take from where we are now with online services and virtual life groups and things like that to meeting like we used to. So just really encourage you to keep your eye out for that and we're gonna be releasing that very soon. We've come to the sixth beatitude in our hashtag blessed series. This series is all about the good life according to Jesus and every single beatitude is like kinda of different, kinda of different than uh, the way we would live on our own. But Jesus assures us, and I think even proves to us, that the way of Jesus is the blessed, happy, flourishing life. So let's look at the sixth beatitude. It says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I mean, is there, is there any, if you really think about it, is there anything greater than that? Seeing God. I mean, isn't that the great hope of our lives? heaven one day in the presence of God, seeing him face to face. Yeah, that's it, right? That's the hope. Now here's the thing. There's just one problem. The pure in heart will see God and our hearts aren't particularly pure. So, so here's what we're gonna do with our time. First, we're gonna look at why you need a pure heart Second, how to get a pure heart. And third, what the pure in heart get. So first, why you need a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Sounds beautiful. That's the hope. But we don't all really have pure hearts. Look at what Psalm 24 says. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in the, his holy place? He who has clean hands, and a pure heart. So again, here's the problem. I know my heart and I know what's in it and I don't think that it's particularly pure. Jealousy, anger, pride, lust, greed. And that's all before I've had coffee in the morning. So, so if, if only those with pure hearts will see God, this is not good news in and of itself. This is actually problematic for us. But there it is, clearly stated in this beatitude, the prerequisite for seeing God is a pure heart. Again, the problem, Jeremiah lays it out, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Above all things, the heart's deceitful and it's sick. That's reality. Jesus affirms that later in Matthew's gospel when he says, 
What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. There was a man in the 20th century, a, a British philosopher named G.K. Chesterton. You know someone's a big deal when they don't use their actual name, but they use initials like G.K. So uh, anyways, this is M.D. Shantz just talking to you today, but you know, that's a real shift, right? Okay, I'm just going to go by G.K. C.S., you know, all that kind of stuff. But listen, he, uh, in the London Times, this question was posed. What's the problem with the world? And a number of thinkers responded to that question that the Times of London put out there. What's the problem with the world? And GK's response was very short. And I think it was spot on. He said, you ask what the problem with the world is? I am. Sincerely, GK Chesterton. That's the truth. What's wrong with the world? I am. You are. So Jesus, if you read the Gospels, right? Pandemics are great times to sit and read the Bible. Read the Gospels. You know what you're going to find? That Jesus zeroes in, laser focused on the heart. He's concerned with the heart. All of his emphasis is on the heart and the condition of your heart. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say this, this truth that we all believe, do not murder. But then Jesus goes on to say, but everyone who's angry at someone in their heart has murdered that person in their heart. And he says, do not commit adultery. But then he goes on to say, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Goes on to say, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? That's the, the old adage, right? But I say to you, Jesus responds, love your enemies, love them, and pray for those who persecute you. Again, this is the good life according to Jesus. And he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That, that's, that's, that's a concern of the heart. That's a posture of the heart. How are we to do that? Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about the purity of the heart required being far more, far different than a purity of the head or purity of emotion or simply purity of conduct. And so I want to chase those down a little bit. I think that they're very pertinent issues in the church that we can explore where we, I think, round down from a purity of heart to just a purity of head or purity of a right emotion or purity of, of proper conduct. So let's call these intellectual, emotional, and dutiful. These are bad things that we're going to talk about, but they are insufficient in and of themselves for salvation in a pure heart. So here's the first, intellectual. Right? During a worship service, the intellectual person, you'll find them with their arms crossed and not so much worshiping God, but critiquing every lyric through right, their, their grid filter of orthodox theology. Now, I don't know about that line. I, I can't sing that one. I, I, could be said better. Right? At life group. At life group, they're, they're pretty quick to quote a Puritan preacher, which I do respect, but, but quick to do that or to quote their systematic theology book. 
right? Or, or, or to complicate the simple or just to run circles around the others just for kicks because they can and they want to flex that brain. But for all their biblical and theological intellect, it stops at knowledge of God and fails to work itself all the way through to relationship with God. A purely, Jesus doesn't say blessed are the pure in head that get it all, that have all the theo, their theological ducks in a row, that they shall see God. But no, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And see the pure in head, you can get all of that stuff right in your brain, in your knowledge. But if it doesn't lead you to relationship with God, it's not enough. Jesus said in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In other words, there's a way of studying the Bible and having knowledge of God's word without acknowledging your need for Jesus and embracing him in your heart. That's a dire warning. James 2 says much the same thing. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. My faith will work itself out in every area of my life. You believe that God is one, he says. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, here's what this text is saying. There is a belief that you can have in God that doesn't lead to life transformation. Demons have an orthodox view of God, that he is one and that he is the one true God. They believe that, but that in and of itself is insufficient. You can have orthodox ideas about God, as demons do, and not trust him and not love him and not be committed to him. If this is you, what you need is a pure heart. Now, where the intellectuals are all about facts, right, and those who are guided more by their emotions are like, ugh. Thank you for saying that about those with an intellectual faith, right? Because they don't feel it. All right, well, now it's your turn, okay? Where the intellectual is all about facts, but can miss relationship with Jesus, emotional belief is based on feelings instead of, in spite of facts. In biblical imagery, we need to understand this. In biblical imagery, when it's talking about the heart, it's talking about the totality of the person. The heart is the center of the entire personality, it includes the mind, it includes the will, it includes what we would think of as the heart. It's the total person. And so the problem with today's definition of heart in our cancel culture is I need to follow my heart, but then that person really peed me off, you know? And so it's like, okay, well, forget them. My heart's telling me that I no longer love them, right? You like this celebrity, you think they're great, but they say something that rubs you the wrong way. We cancel them. We cancel that politician. We cancel people depending on what they do. We follow our heart. We're guided by it. But the problem with that is with I need to follow my heart is that it's fleeting. It's changing. And it really can't be trusted. Remember Jeremiah 17? The heart is deceitful above all things. So those whose faith is based on emotion love a good worship service. And they're really disappointed in the intellectuals with their arms crossed. And they're thinking, why are we not engaging in this? Can we have seven more songs, please? Can we respond to this sermon with five songs, an altar call, a group prayer session, any form of, of response that I can do? I am there. Just call me to it, please. 
They love a good worship session in the car. You ever driven by those folks? It's good times. Their prayer times often involve a good cry, right? I'm being a little bit facetious here, but here's the thing. In 2 Timothy 4.3, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Without being rooted in the truth, Jesus is the truth and the life. Those who chase an emotional, spiritual experience have nothing to anchor them in Christ's teachings, especially when it's costly, because that's not going to feel great and suit our own passions. So we're going to want to veer at that point. If this is you, you cannot simply have an emotional faith. You need a pure heart. Third, like Jesus didn't put the emphasis on the head, he also doesn't put the emphasis on the hands. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. The dutiful go to church every Sunday or the minute it comes online, like these days, you're watching it because good Christians watch and attend the service on Sunday mornings, every Sunday morning, right? Or good Christians tithe, right? Tithe 10% roughly or as close as you can while still having money to spend it on the things you really truly deep down love most. The dutiful don't swear at least in front of other Christians, because good Christians don't swear. The dutiful do these things. This is doing, though, in the sense of earning rather than doing in light of genuine salvation. Now, if you love Jesus, you're probably going to come to church a lot. You're probably going to give to the ministry and the mission of Christ's church. You're, you're probably going to clean up your language, but it's going to not be a duty that will earn you anything, but it's out of gratitude because Christ has earned it for you. And so Jesus, he hated an outward show of spirituality. He hated the outward show of the purity that the Pharisees put on. He talked about it as you're cleaning the outside of the cup and the outside of the plate. But the inside of the cup is nasty. It's filthy. And you're just making a great show of it with this clean exterior. But I'm after your heart. And so Jesus tells us in a number of ways. And in Luke 18 specifically, he tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go up to the Temple Mount to pray. And the Pharisee, I don't even know if you can call it prayer, is like, thank you, God, that I'm not like that tax collector. I fast. I tithe. That, that was his prayer. The tax collector barely gets close to the Temple Mount. He feels unworthy. And he, he, he cries out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus is saying to a bunch of religious people, you know who went home justified that day? The tax collector. He cried out to God in his need. And God meets us when we're desperate and when we pray to him from the heart. If that Pharisee, though, is you, what you need is a pure heart. So, our faith, listen, let me make it really, really clear. Our faith should engage our intellects. It should engage our emotions. We, we need to have a thinking faith. We are told in the scriptures to have a thinking faith. We should also have a feeling faith. It should affect us. It should move us. And if it doesn't, in either of those categories, that should give us pause. And it's not simply a responsibility of doing this and doing that faith. These 
things, intellect, emotion, and duty in and of themselves cannot save us. They prove the genuineness, though, of our faith when they come, all of those things come out of the heart. God's agenda, listen, isn't to make mean people nice. It's to make dead people live. It's not about nice people. It's about new people. Jesus rails against an outward show. He's after the heart, the whole person. Jesus wants you. Not just your head. He wants your heart. Not just your emotion, but your entire being. Not just your duty, but your delight. So if our hearts are crooked then, if our hearts are divided and they're sick, how do we get a pure heart? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because that's where we're going next. How to get a pure heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his beautiful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, wrote, The only way, the only way to have a pure heart is to realize you have an impure heart. I mean, this should make sense if you've been tracking our series on the Beatitudes, right? To be pure in heart, we must be given a new heart. With unclean hands and an impure heart, how can anyone ascend the mountain we read about in Psalm 24? Here's the reality. What we need is a cure so powerful that it heals us from the inside out. Our religious attempts are trying to cleanse ourselves from the outside in, and we spend most of our time exhausting ourselves, trying to have the right outward appearance, when truly what we need is new life inside of us that flows out to new ways of living, new ways of thinking, new ways of doing that, that come out of joyful response to Jesus. See, in the person of Jesus, purity itself came down the mountain and entered our divided world to lead us up the mountain which we could never do alone. To make a way, Jesus lived among us, escaped every temptation, lived a sinless life among sinful people. He brilliantly taught the way to live a blessed life, and he demonstrated it beautifully. But his teaching and living alone couldn't heal our divided hearts. So he drew up all our impurity upon himself, knowing it would crush him, and bore it, on the cross and in giving his life on the cross he absorbed our sin and then in taking his life back up in resurrection he secured our spotless status jesus offers us his purity for our impurity here's some questions for you have you cried out to purity himself and asked him to cleanse you have you looked at your tainted hands and crooked heart and put your trust in Christ? The one who, who, the one with clean hands and a pure heart who came down the mountain so that he could draw you up again. When you are made one with the purity of Jesus, what happens is God looks upon you and sees the purity of his spotless son. That's that glory, that shimmering reflection of Jesus in us from Christ is what God sees as he looks upon us. What we lack, he imparts. Where we're divided, he unites. Our purity isn't accomplished by anything we do, but what Jesus has done. So we get purity himself 
when we surrender our lives to Christ? Have you given your life to Jesus? Do you realize that your heart is wicked, deceitful, and sick, and that you need a new heart? This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. These are things that we simply cannot do on our own. We cannot get ourselves up the the mountain. We cannot ascend the hill of the Lord because we've tried to clean up our act a little bit or do a few religious things. We need Jesus to implant a new heart in us, give us new life and transform us from the inside out. Has Jesus done that in you? Have you cried out to him for that? And, and, And not only that, do you continue to rely on his mercy and his grace? Are you living for him? Are you trusting in him? Are you reliant on him and not yourself? Now you may be asking yourself, well, why do my hands still get dirty if I have new life, if I have a new heart, if I have surrendered my life to Christ? Why do my hands still get dirty and why does my heart still wander? How do I keep my heart from reverting back from dualistic ways of pursuing sin on the one hand and trying to earn my own salvation by outward appearances and actions on the other? The answer is to practice the rest of the beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it look like to practice that? Seeing God. Thomas Chalmers was a 19th century Scottish preacher. And he wrote a sermon, a relatively famous sermon, called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. All the intellectuals uh, watching this today are like, yeah, I've read it (laughs) twice. And now that you remind me, I'm going to read it again later today. Great sermon, which which it is, which it is. And I think what he says in the sermon is, is really helpful. He said, the best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one, to replace it with a pure one. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Do you hear what he's saying? Here's what he's saying. The best way to remove our attachment to particular sins and idolatry is not just to try harder not to do those things, but to replace those things with better things, more stunning, more beautiful, more healthy things. Like sin leads to death. And after a while, we realize that. And this is bad. I keep thinking it's going to be good this time, but it's bad again. And then when you see Jesus and he makes you healthy and he makes you whole and and you don't have guilt and shame, but you have freedom and hope, right? What you've done is you've started to realize that I want to replace those ugly things with, with the beauty of Jesus, with the truth of the gospel in relationship with Christ. And so in that way, seeing Jesus, when you've really tasted and seen the goodness of God, like nothing else comes close. Nothing compares. That's the expulsive power of a new affection. It's replacing the wanderings in our hearts, and what they chase, and replacing them with greater truth, with a, with a more stunning reality. So here's where we need to go to close. Not only how to get a pure heart, Surrender our lives to Christ, recognize our hearts are impure and that we need a pure heart and that only Jesus can give us that. But then thirdly, beautiful promise, what the pure in heart get. Uh, Just to illustrate this, I just want to tell you a little bit about my grandfather. 
he, he passed away when I was 17 and we were particularly close. We had a lot in common. People say we kind of looked alike. We, we kind of joke the same way. He was a great storyteller. I still try and walk in his shadow a little bit on those lines, but just a great man and a really fun man. He failed uh, grade 11 twice because he was more interested in dating the girls, but he became a Baptist reverend and was a preacher his whole adult life. And, uh, you know, we, I could talk a lot about him. I could talk to you for a long time about my grandpa. But if I were to boil it down and, and you were to ask me, what do you miss most? I, I would just summarize it this way. Seeing him. His presence. I wonder if that's the case for you as well, a loved one you've lost. What do you miss most? What I'd give to just see them again, right? Their presence, just being with them. See, see here's, here's the beauty. What the pure in heart get is they get to see God. And I want to show you a few ways that we, we, we can see God now in this life. I would plead with you that you would pursue that. I think for young people, many young people are leaving the faith. One of the reasons they leave the faith is because they haven't had, haven't had genuine encounters with Jesus. What I want for you is that for you to see, for you to acknowledge, for you to know that you can see God now. And there's a few ways you can do that. Yes, it's partially fulfilled, this promise of seeing God, but there are ways you can see God. And, and so let's start with those. Here's the first. You can see God in the Bible. I, I found the Bible to be boring until I was 19 years old. And at that particular time, God was starting to do some things in my life. I, I was probably wandering at that point in my faith uh, more than I ever had in my life, but God, in, in some pretty strong ways, drew me back. And the primary way, really, I think he did that, was he gave me a hunger for God's word like I'd never had before, and I loved reading the Bible. I wanted to read it, and then as I did, I saw that it was living, and I saw God in it. God, God's word to us reveals him as he, in his own words. We can see God in the Bible. Second, we can see God in nature. Has this been your experience? I've seen the Niagara Falls a couple of times in my life, and in both instances, I had the exact same jaw-dropping, kind of stunned reaction. I remember walking up, you hear the roar of the falls before you get close enough to see the falls, and then you see the water just pouring over, and it's, it's staggering. And I remember thinking a couple things both times I saw the Niagara Falls. One, why would anyone ever go over these falls in a barrel? And two, God is amazing. God's amazing. What are the experiences you've had in nature where as a follower of Jesus, you just know, wow, God made this. I see God's fingerprints here. I see God in nature. Third, we, we can see God in our circumstances. Isn't it true that we see God in our circumstances even, or maybe especially in our difficulties? The book of Job is a super sobering book, and it concludes with intimacy between Job and God. After all the circumstances of Job's life, many of them more difficult than we could imagine, he concludes, I had heard of you by, hearing of your, hear, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. The circumstances of Job's life brought him to see God more clearly. Have you had those moments in your life? You see the very hand of God. You sense his presence, whether it's in the joys or in the sorrows. 
we can see God in all of it. But one day, ultimately, this seeing that will come is when every, everyone who's placed their hope and trust in God will see him face to face. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There's a vision of God in your future, follower of Jesus, that at first glance at God will make you fully and completely like him. That moment will be the greatest event in your eternal existence. Let that revolutionize your life. Think about it. A day is coming for all who have placed their hope in Christ, where you will see God and your heart will be made fully pure and you will be in his presence and you will see him as he is and you will be like him. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Let me just conclude with this. Let me encourage you. Make sure you've gotten honest with God about your heart's condition. Make sure you've gotten honest with God about your heart's condition. Confess the ugliness of your heart to him and ask him to purify your heart. You know what David did after his great sins? He went to God and says, purify my heart. Cleanse my heart. Cleanse me from the inside out. I invite you, perhaps for the very first time as you're watching this, to turn to Jesus. If you never have turned to Jesus before and acknowledge that only he can give you a pure heart. I think you know that. Even after doing everything you possibly can, it's still not enough. You need Jesus to give you a new heart, to purify your heart, make you new. I want to invite everyone watching to fix your eyes on his word where you can see God as he reveals himself in scripture. And I want to invite everyone to fix your eyes on your eternity living towards what you know is coming, where all who look to Jesus for a pure heart will one day see him face to face. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for, um, for the Beatitudes. They are, they are doing a lot in me, Lord. Uh, they are shaping and molding me afresh. They are challenging me. Um, they are shining a spotlight on my sin, but they're shining a beautiful spotlight on Jesus. Jesus, I pray that you would be the center of our lives. I pray that we would be a people who love you and live for you and are convinced that your way is, is the best way. You map out the good life, Jesus. I pray that we would trust you on it. I think even our experience, not just your word being proclaimed and which is true, but our experience also says our way doesn't work. So God, I pray as a church, we're scattered. Usually we gather and then we scatter, but Lord, we're, we're, we're constantly scattered right now. But Lord, I pray that you would make central, you would make us a people who live your way of life, who are convinced that your way is the good way, Jesus. Help us in that, I pray purify our hearts. And Jesus, we look forward to seeing you face to face one day. Amen.